Hello everyone and welcome to the Gender Equality Network USC's first roundtable for the 2021-2022 year. My name is Shruti Pulacharla, my pronouns are she, her, and this is Shimmy Kelly. Hi everyone, I'm Shimmy, my pronouns are also she, her. And we are the advocacy commissioners for the Gender Equality Network and we're joined here by a group of wonderful speakers who are all fe uh, fellow Western students and alumni and we're, we're going to be talking with them today. Um, so if you guys just want to introduce yourselves, you can go ahead and do that. Um, hi, I'm Zara. My friends are she and her. I'm a first-year PhD student in the English and Writing Studies department. Um, I also recently just started my role as the Gender Concerns Commissioner for um, SOGS, and I'm hoping for my research to be in um, topics related to rape culture and incels as well. That's super interesting. My name is Ava. I'm in my fourth year at MIT in political science. Um, I also represent my faculty as the counselor on the USC. Um, and my interest in ASGVP really locked in this year as I started working on it in the summer with, through the USC and alongside Mika. Um, and we, we both ratified the working group that's currently investigating these kind of themes and topics on our campus as well. Yeah. Uh, Hi everyone, um, my name is Nika, I use she, her pronouns. Um, like Ava mentioned, I've been involved with the USC for the past few years and worked on the ASGBB working group last year and then was re-ratified alongside Ava this year. Um, in the meantime, I've also been the Social Science Students Council President um, and as well as a faculty SOF and a resident SOF, so I've you know been able to kind of see ASGBB from those two perspectives as well, so excited to talk with you all today. Well, hi everyone, my name is Sarah Emily, pronouns she, her. I'm also in my third year. I'm doing an honors spec in political science and a major in English. Um, like Nika, I was also a former resident staff and a faculty staff this year for social science. I'm also a counselor for the Social Science Student Council, and I'm the co-chair of the ASGBB working group on the USC this year. Um, my name's Rachel. I'm a fourth year and doing a major in chemistry and a minor in math. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and I am a resident staff. I've worked in residence for three years, and my perspective on like um, gender based violence comes a lot from like that perspective. Great. Um, well, it's great to be talking with you all today. So uh, as you may know, our topic of discussion is the prevalence of rape culture at Western University. Uh, before we start, I do want to preface a trigger with a trigger warning. Uh, during this discussion, we're going to be talking generally about sexual and gender-based violence. Uh, while we aren't going to get into any details about incidents of SGBV, we are going to be sharing statistics and information, as well as having some general open discussions about some sensitive topics. Um, I want to express that this is meant to be a safe space. Um, if any of our participants feel the need to leave at any point uh, or get up or get some water, you're completely free to do so. This is a difficult conversation and, you know, we understand that everyone is affected differently by this. Um, to everyone watching, uh, please feel free to stop watching at any time if these topics are sensitive for you. We completely understand. So this has been a key topic in the last few months here at Western. So today we plan to have an honest conversation with students about why rape culture is so prevalent here at Western. And we want to find out how students are feeling and reacting in response to this issue, why gender and gender equality is essential to changing rape culture, and what the average student can do to help combat these pressing issues. I want to start with uh, some information about Western's history with uh, sexual assault and rape culture. Um, a 2018 survey from the Council of Ontario Universities found that 71% of Western students reported being sexually harassed on campus, uh, over 32% reported being sexually assaulted. Um, compared to universities across Ontario, that's 8% higher than the average sexual harassment rate and 9% higher than the average sexual assault rate. It's also the highest sexual assault rate of all Ontario universities. Um, which is very upsetting. Um, recently, uh, Western has made advancements towards a new action plan um, against campus uh, against campus rape culture. To name a few advancements, they have made in-person training on uh, sexual violence a mandatory requirement for all students living in residence. They have planned to hire 100 undergrad and grad students as safety ambassadors to take night shifts on campus and they have re-allowed faculty staffs the ability to enter and access residents to support their first-year students. So my first question to all of you is, 
what do you think about the advancements towards change that Western has made so far, honestly? I'd be curious to hear what Rachel's thoughts are on this because like from constituent mm -hmm. feedback, there's been a lot of discourse about discomfort that all these new presence within residences are having. Right. Um, there's been some, some counselors as well who have uh, kind of suggested that it doesn't necessarily make students feel more safe to have a higher, you know, often male police presence right. in residence. And, okay. you know, is that reactionary or is it preventative? Um, and so that's a discussion that I've been having a lot among, you know, friends and um, kind of colleagues. I'd be curious to see what Rachel has to say about that because you have a bit more of like an actual, like a primary resource perspective. Yeah. I think the increased presence in residence for a lot of our students, they don't fully grasp like what a DON is or what a safety, like a health and safety advisor is or what like um folks taking those night shifts like mm -hmm. in, in an attempt to be a preventative measure a lot of the time or like also right now we have a lot of increased security presence mm -hmm. in our residence buildings and that's just kind of to support the whole like COVID restrictions and also just like the safety of our students honestly they don't fully like a lot of them don't fully understand the difference and like mm -hmm. um even though it's definitely presented during like orientation week and stuff like I find a lot of time when I knock on the door they're like oh my god it's security Okay. <laughs> like I'm dressed in my pajamas on the Monday night so it can be difficult for them I think like you said a lot of the time the more people they are sometimes they're just scared okay um so like it would be really great if like those folks who were doing those like preventative like walks around and just shifts yeah. were really represented so like whether it was like a vest that was like a really clear color like if it was like bright purple or something like that and it just it was a note that like they were there for support and they weren't like enforcing any rules of any kind. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard any students talking necessarily about feeling like unsafe with the increased presence in residence, but a lot of them are just like concerned that their parties like will get broken up right. or that like yeah. their fun activities are being like disturbed. Um, yeah, I think it comes with a lot of like miscommunication and kind of like fear. Right. Like, especially with like the increased presence of security. So we really need to like establish that this is like these are like there's a difference. Like these are people that you can yeah. you can come to and talk to about the, about these things, right? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Okay. Yeah. I feel like going off of that, um, like one of the things that I've heard a lot and that mm -hmm. I personally agree with is that a lot of the measures that Western has enforced have been really taking the approach that, you know, sexual assault and rape is something that happens by, you know, in a dark alley by someone you don't know, when statistically speaking on university campuses, most people are assaulted or harassed by someone they do know or someone that's close to them that they trust. Yeah. Um, so what, that's what I find really interesting about like yeah. the policing measures being used is I don't think that's not necessarily a solution. I think, you know, it, it may help to ensure that students are checking their behavior and, right. and it may ensure that some students are kept safer, but I don't think it's necessarily targeting the core issue of rape culture on campus right. and um, protecting students from dangerous situations. Yeah, totally. I think um, that Western's um, commitment to like introduce more consent training to mm -hmm. students and residents is a good start yeah. for that perhaps. Right. Um, because obviously to battle rape culture, we need to build a consent culture instead. Yeah. Um, but I think that that could be something useful to make mandatory for all students coming to Western and not just those in residence. Yeah, definitely. Definitely want to agree with that. And it's it's very interesting, especially Ava, your note on uh, Western's response being more reactionary than proactive. Mm -hmm. That's definitely kind of like the tone we're seeing with this response. Because we've had discussions, the UFC had discussions, um, you know, students just among themselves, residence ops as well, had those discussions of consent training needs to be made mandatory for students coming to live into residence and also just for first years in general. That's how you, like, I, in a perfect world, knit the problem mm -hmm. in the bud before it gets started. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a lot of those conversations were shut down, saying we can't implement those sorts of things, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. And then there's a crisis, mm -hmm. and the reaction, the immediate reaction, is to do something that could have been implemented in advance right. and proactively, yeah. not maybe stop, but at least maybe mitigated mm -hmm. some of the, the damage that's been done. Um, so while I do think Western took several important strides, several good strides with this response, 
just by very nature of the fact that it came too late, mm-hmm. it was a very reactionary approach. Mm-hmm. And I think like the defense that we've seen utilized by administration in the past is often, oh, well, sex education is something that's delivered earlier in you know your education, right? But the reality is, so many Western students, first of all, don't come from Ontario. We right. have such a large international student population. Second of all, the sex ed curriculum is very broken, and that's a whole right. other conversation <laughs> that I won't get into. But yeah. um, it's like one of those things where, like, at what point as a university do you take responsibility for the students that you have on your campus? And yeah. I think that the events that we saw recently, um, I know we're not discussing them, but I think they really highlighted the fact that, you know, there does need to be some level of responsibility taken by the administration mm-hmm. for the students that they are going to call, you know, Western students, and that collectively that education does need to be made mandatory for everyone. Um, and I totally agree with you that it, it's a step towards combating that rape culture on campus, um, and it needs to be extended to all students. Yeah, yeah. and sorry, just to make again a note on yeah. that, like, responsibility that Western needs to take. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, we all pay to be here. Yeah, and we deserve to feel safe on the campus that we pay to be on, that we pay to the university we pay to attend, and so that kind of relationship that we have with the university by virtue of the fact that we, um, you know, send them our tuition, like pay for uh, ancillary services on campus, means that in some regard they do owe us mm-hmm. safety, they do owe us comfort mm-hmm. to be able to walk around on campus without feeling like you need to watch your back, feel like yeah. you can exist safely in a residence space. And like, I feel like at its core, and this is something that, you know, is really lost, especially within the context of Canada, because like in comparison to the U.S., there's not as many choices at universities. So that relationship of you're the consumer and that your customer demand should be put first is really broken. And I feel like we've really seen that in the sense that Westerns, you know, heard so many times, time and time and again, that they need to address this culture and they need to do something, but they mm-hmm. feel like they can get away with not. I, I would add on to that as well and say part of the transaction isn't just that it's owed, it actually should be expected. Yeah. Why would I walk onto campus and expect safety not to be something that's part of my, mm-hmm. really, like, student experience? We talk about yeah. student experience a lot, and often I think it's used in place of the term, like, party life. Mm-hmm. I think Western says, oh, we have the best student experience, mm-hmm. but yeah. they don't necessarily define what that means. And part of that ambiguity is somewhat dangerous, in my opinion. I think we can also consider the fact that Western is, like, known for its party life, right? And I don't know necessarily that, like, Western itself wants to get rid of that idea, you know? And I think that that's where a lot of, like, these just crazy statistics and a lot of this stuff is, is might be coming from is, you know, that whole thing. No one, like, people want the, you know, the sexual assault part to just go away, but they don't want to they don't want to get rid of the rest of it, you know, because it's so valuable to our reputation as a school in many ways, you know? Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, like, you make a great point, Western profits off of the idea of our party life, right? Whether Mm -hmm. they, you know, inherently realize it or not, Mm -hmm. or inherently want to call it that or not, Mm -hmm. um, that that is just a nature of kind of the reputation and the student experience that we provide. And so, you know, definitely I agree with you, like, segmenting the idea that student experience in terms of party culture and rape culture are intertwined inherently. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Maybe then, like, I know they're implementing consent training, um, but maybe this needs to be broadened a bit. I, I don't I don't know exactly what it would entail, but um, because party culture and rape culture seem to be so intertwined, like, that's unfortunate. It shouldn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we need to talk about um, healthy sexual interactions on a more broad scale mm-hmm. and, like, talk about sex in less of less in terms of like power but more in terms of um wanting your part like wanting it to be pleasurable for like mm-hmm. both parties and things like that and like yeah. creating this culture of healthier sex um yeah in in addition to um training with consent yeah i can actually speak to that um we are implementing that oh great um specifically for resident students which obviously like you said it should be like a broad campus thing mm-hmm. like it should be something that everybody can attend so resident staff currently attend, like recently attended a gender-based violence um, like training that was mandatory for us, and it's kind of like piloting it for first year next year. And that's what we did. We sat down and we they split us off into groups. So it was like a men's section and then a women and non-binary section. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talked about the pros and cons of doing that and how like sometimes it can create like spaces where it feels like there's bias towards like mm-hmm. you know certain gender groups, but. Um, they also talked about the pros of, like, safe spaces for discussion, mm-hmm. and what we did in them was we talked about, like, sexual scripts and, like, what it looks like in empowering you to choose, like, what you want, and we looked at things like porn and, like, the mm-hmm. ways they, like, 
create scripts in our heads and like like contribute to like the gender-based violence mm-hmm. and like sexual assault that like happens within university campuses and like expectations and that was actually like really great and yeah, I so we gave them a lot of feedback about things you know like super um to make it like super inclusive to like all folks and mm-hmm. a lot of people from like different um like spaces so it was like super intersectional approaches but if they implement that I think that would be a great place yeah. to like start and although it is great that it's for our first years because like most of them go through residence before mm-hmm. they come into like the broader scale I think it would be great to offer it to our current like upper year students too totally I agree that sounds awesome yeah I think like it does so much reducing the stigma surrounding conversations of sex yeah um by just making it more of maybe not maybe common is the wrong word but just a comfortable conversation yeah, cool. where it's like and like you said Amy you said word like expected like before you know you engage in like sexual practices with a partner having that conversation should be expected of hey here's what I'm comfortable with here's what hey maybe I'd want to try but take it slow and here's what I'm absolutely saying I'm not comfortable with yeah then you both are going in with that clear frame of mind um and then that's when you can engage like safely healthily um, and it's just so important to be able to have those kind of open dialogues, especially yeah. with a partner. Yeah, totally. It's really nice to hear what that they're doing now because I know like something that we've talked a lot about in solving is like the fact that historically the kind of approach to consent education was just the can I kiss you presentation, yeah. which yeah. like I know I'm sure we've all discussed, but I'll, I'll mention <laughs> it here just in case anybody listening hasn't. It's you know, generally they took a very binary, standardized white heterosexual approach to discussing sexual assault and it was done through the lens of like um a brother or a brother is discussing his sister's sexual assault and how that affected him which is just very like inherently flawed mm-hmm. um so it's nice to see that they're taking a little more of an yeah. intersectional approach to educating our first years it was also really cool at the end and it's partnered with anova which was really okay. really great um and they gave us this like sheet and it had like the red light um green light like yellow lights theory mm-hmm. kind of on it um, and then it listed a bunch of things and it was like, here's something that you could go through with your partners or like just for yourself. So you're aware. And it was really, really great too. Cause it like, not only, like you said, included things that were very like heteronormative. It was like a really broad spectrum. It was good. That's awesome. Yeah. Did they, um, like within the training, do they talk about, um, consent and navigating like consent or, um, like acquaint- within like acquaintance relationships like to yeah. prevent acquaintance rape it, all, it was it also talked about like it touched on that and it also talked about like it was like a it was quadrants and it was like verbal non-verbal direct and indirect oh, and it really talks about like what that could look like mm-hmm. um, and they also touched upon things like some we talk like something we talked about in my group is like sometimes you say yes and like you give that verbal consent and like the legal definition mm-hmm. of consent but you mean no because but you can't say it because like maybe you're scared or maybe it's like yeah. an environmental factor mm-hmm. and they talked a lot and something that like I really stuck with me was that we discussed in depth like just because you like maybe the legal definition gave consent mm-hmm. you might have experienced something and it's like a very human experience and you're allowed to seek support. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that was something they pushed, which was really good. Yeah. That's incredible. And that's the first time I've ever had a conversation like that within the institution and it's my fourth year. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, if everyone's okay with us like moving on, then we're going to move on to the next point. But that was some great discussion. Thank you guys. Um, so I want to, you know, this kind of it is related um i want to discuss like the huge role that gender inequality plays in western's rape culture um, and i'm going to start with some stats um in 2019 statistics canada found that one in 10 women were sexually assaulted in a post-secondary setting and that young women made up the majority of sexual assault victims that year according to the ywca at least one in five transgender non-binary and gender fluid post-secondary students uh, experienced sexual assault. And here's a statistic that is a bit shocking and might make you feel a bit uncomfortable, but overall, according to uh, Canadian Women's Foundation, over 93% of reported victims um, are women and 97% of those accused are men. Uh, so let's talk about this because 97% of the assaults are happening from one gender. Um, and our goal here, like 
you know, of course as well, men are victims of abuse too, and women are perpetrators too, and that, of course, right? And our goal is not to bash men, you know? This is not about male bashing, and it shouldn't be. Um, this is just about, like, dealing with the statistics, you know, these awful statistics, and there are so many good people out there, and a lot of the time it's, you know, good people that do awful, hurtful things. Um, and there are a lot of uh, allies that want to help in this situation. Um, this year I had, um, I had a, someone reach out to me or they put something on their story that was, um, uh, that was like the Q and A sticker on their story. And it was like, uh, what, uh, I want to know, like, how can, how can men help make like women and, you know, we would of course include like non-binary and, uh, transgender, gender fluid, you know, people in that as well. Um, but how can, uh, I, how can men help women feel more safe on campus? And I responded to that and he reached out to me and, um, he asked if I could like write up, um, something that he could post on his story about that, um, because he felt that I had, like, he really liked what I had said. And I thought that that was really interesting and just a really like good example here that, um, you know, there are people, there are male allies that really want to help. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is how do we like support our male allies, um, to help them support other men? Because I think that, I think that a lot of the time, like men are going to be the ones to get through to other men. Right. Um, so that's my question is, you know, how can we support male allies to help them support other men? You know, maybe there's like groups we could reach out to, something like that. I was wondering your guys' thoughts on that. That's a really important question to ask. Mm. And it's something that I, I think about a lot. And it's actually, yeah. just to give a bit of context, I was talking with my friend about, you know, like how prevalent, um, GBV is on yeah. campuses and just, and we were talking about how terrifying it is that almost every woman that we know has either experienced a form of gender-based violence or knows someone who has. Mm -hmm. And my friend, she just made the comment like, yeah, I know so many women, but I couldn't tell you one man that's like perpetrated mm -hmm. this. Right. Um, and that comment stuck with me because it's not just one man perpetrating this. Yeah. That's kind of the reality. It's not, you know? <laughs> that would be insane. That would be crazy. <laughs> um, and again, this is not to like suggest or yeah. assume that only men perpetrate uh, yeah. sexual assault and gender-based violence. Um, but women are disproportionately impacted mm -hmm. by a disproportionate number of men. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it did kind of get me thinking, and it's actually a concept that's taught to us in soft training, and I'm pretty sure residents don training as well as the concept of calling in. Right. Um, and I think that's the best way that male allies can help create that culture of support among male groups is if you notice a behavior, if you notice language that is derogatory or you know suggestive, in a way that is potentially harmful or dangerous. Mm -hmm. In that space, you have the opportunity to call someone in and say, hey, that's not cool. And sometimes that, content, that comment will be made with no malicious intent. It may just be made offhand. Um, but creating like creating that attention and just saying, hey, like, that wasn't cool, mm -hmm. maybe think about that, or give, you, give them the opportunity to take it back, is starting a much needed conversation, much yeah. needed dialogue about thinking about the like ramifications of your actions and the words that you're using mm -hmm. and the butterfly that effect that mm -hmm. can have on treating people not just women but everyone with mm -hmm. more respect in the words that you're using yeah that makes me think of like the i'm not sure if any of you have seen like the graphic where it's like the pyramid and it's kind mm -hmm. of the idea that like rape culture is built on a pyramid and it starts at the bottom with things like rape jokes and, and that sort of thing and builds up into you know yeah. systemically like the statistics that you're reading off um, but I also think that you make a great point in terms of calling in because what struck, struck me, excuse me, about the statistics that you read off mm -hmm. was the fact that um, obviously statistically speaking, males are the greater perpetrators, but there is also such a culture where men think that they can't report sexual assault, right? Yeah. Because it makes them weak. And I think that, you know, making men feel comfortable with accepting the reality that, you know, they may have been assaulted or coming mm -hmm. forward and reporting it also starts with, you know, them having conversations about mm -hmm. rape culture and having that understanding that, you know, this, you know, rape jokes, etc., are not okay. And yeah. So I think it, you know, goes really back to that calling in concept that Sarah brought up. I think that comes back as well as talking about safe sex and what yeah. consent looks like, because mm -hmm. really it's not just about educating women about what safe sex looks like and people who identify in that category of, mm -hmm. what was it, 90 something? 
93%. The 93%. Right. right. So at the same time, it's also not just necessarily a, a man saying, oh, I'm weak because this happened to me. It's also saying, I'm supposed to want it. So mm-hmm. why was I, why was I unhappy? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And so if you are able to open that spectrum up to mm-hmm. what an honest conversation could look like mm-hmm. and empowering people, students, just anybody actually with the knowledge mm-hmm. of honestly reality, like yeah. we yeah. really it's oversimplify even in education, never enough time, too much literature, too much thought, but it's all valuable. Yeah. And so if you were to provide further resources and open it into a more educated conversation mm-hmm. that encourages students to be very honest with what's in front of them, I think mm-hmm. that that's more proactive and healthy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Totally. I also liked what you said about like calling in because it gives a vulnerable space for them to start unlearning, which is like a huge yeah. thing. Because mm-hmm. like when, like we said, disproportionately men, like when they're growing up, they're taught that like from like things like porn or their friends or like Mm -hmm. just general societal standards they're supposed to be dominant and they're Mm -hmm. supposed to be not supposed to ask things they're not supposed to like have feelings they're not supposed to like acknowledge those things and when they're called out in front of like big groups it brings up a lot of emotion like anger resistance Mm -hmm. and then you don't want to take part in that unlearning and that's not something that you want to engage in but if you call them in and give them space Mm -hmm. to be vulnerable and like unpack that and give them resources like you said to like continuously put in the like work Mm -hmm. to educate themselves then they're probably more willing to like be empowered to like call their friend in and be like Mm -hmm. hey this was a small thing but like let me tell you why it was wrong and like I'm not attacking you I'm just like giving you a space to unlearn what you thought was okay for so long totally I like the language that you use (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of the time friends like that those areas like friends calling in for other friends is like one of the most like I feel like that would be one of the most impactful ways to start changing this because I think that there can I think you're right there can be a very like defensive reaction that can come up when it's an external thing even like even those like seminars like the oh my god what's it called the the can I kiss you one and stuff like that like it just brings up all of these emotions and it brings up this like defensive front you know and I think it's different when like it's it's people who someone that's your friend I know I think you know I think people can in general you know do that for their friends and it doesn't have to be like a um a, like a some someone getting mad at the other person because this is this is systemic right this is something that's in all of us we all have this like internalized ideas these internalized ideas yeah, yeah exactly and if I could just even add on to that like yeah normalizing that that practice of calling in and being vulnerable and you know beginning that process of mm-hmm. unlearning goes so much further than just rape culture as well it's how you call out racist practices homophobic totally. practices mm-hmm. sexist practices and take those positive steps towards change on a more holistic scale as mm-hmm. well so it's a really important thing to engage in um, i'm really happy that you brought up that concept of yeah. unlearning because yeah. it is yeah. so central mm-hmm. to so many of these kinds of discussions because like you said a lot of us like if it's things like for me as like a white person like when it came to like talks of like racism a lot of the time people are like well I'm not a part of the problem because I'm not blank like I'm not directly this and a lot of men might be like well I'm not a part of the problem because like I haven't assaulted Mm -hmm. anyone but then they can't take like a step back then they remove themselves from the problem Mm -hmm. so they also remove themselves from being like part of the solution because they don't see where they could play an active role in this space right because it's a very scary space to put themselves in sometimes Mm -hmm. but like if you give them like the comfortability to like ease into it then they're more willing to like participate totally i hope that um within the like consent training because i know you said that they divided like the men yeah up that there's like um a conversation that's more geared toward men and their role in it and like perhaps like the subtle toxicities within like masculine culture um because what upset me uh, a couple of years or more now um I I went through sexual violence myself and then I did um some like sexual like acquaintance training and all that stuff and it was a really great course and really helpful but um everyone who was there was a woman and I asked after like I said wow this program is really great um but I noticed like there are no men here is there a similar program for men and I emailed the person who um, like created the program and she said unfortunately there hasn't been any way that we have found effective to reach men um, which was really upsetting to hear because 
you're missing like half the people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when the onus is just placed on the women or, or other people who find themselves victimized, then that perpetuates the whole feeling of, of feeling like like of the of the survivor feeling like it's their fault because they're given all these tools saying like don't mm-hmm. do this, don't do this, don't do this and then when it happens, like obviously it's gonna feel like it's your fault because you were given all these tools and the perpetrators weren't. Mm-hmm. Um and so we need to find a way to to reach the the majority of perpetrators. I don't really know where That's I'm going with that, but totally, yeah. And I think that, that can even extend like you know, that's why I was thinking, like, if there were, like, groups or something that, like, can be reached out to, I, I think that it would be, like, a good idea to try to reach out to men in places that they already are, rather than trying to get them to, you know, step yeah. out of their, yeah. like, I was thinking, like, sports or, like, something. I don't want to be, like, stereotypical, <laughs> but I'm thinking of, like, where where it would be helpful, right? Like, where we can implement that. such a good idea. Like, if you think about, like, if you want to participate on a varsity team, Mm -hmm. you have to do this, like, seminar. And it's not necessarily, like, a don't do this, don't do that, like, seminar. It's very much, like, let's have a conversation about this. Yeah. Yeah. Because you are, like, look to, especially, like, our football team, for example, like, Mm -hmm. they're idolized. Like, everybody is, like, loves them. And it's, like, be so great to see those guys, like, on campus, like, advocating for certain things like that. Or, like, to ask those teams to, like, come out to events, like, when we have, like, gender-based violence, Mm -hmm. like, um, and, like, anti, like, SGBV, like, things on Concrete Beach, Mm -hmm. have them there. Like, not necessarily, like, as a... Like, just actively engaging in it. Like, yeah. you know. The football team does participate in yes. seminars. Like, they've, had, they've, they've done that in the past. Or different groups who... Sorry? That was passed by the USC last yeah, year. That's so but bad, even right. prior to that, there's been discourses. Also, things offered by coaches. Right. And sometimes, I wouldn't say it's the healthiest framing. Like, I think okay. sometimes part of the problem is that there's a lot of... Um, it's even in the way that we treat men mm-hmm. about the subject I think there's a lot of um, accusatory language that's used towards student athletes at least in the football team and I think maybe something we could do as well is try and shift that in a way that if it's like we're all human we're all students mm-hmm. we're all we're all here what are we going to contribute to our shared space yeah. um, and I think one thing with the football team is that you're right they're highly visible and they have that platform and it's not like football students haven't for players like haven't been part of activism in the past we've mm-hmm. seen that in 2015 in missouri like they have a platform and a voice to use mm-hmm. and so I, I i like as well how rather than ostracizing groups it's bringing them together because i know mm-hmm. i was aware of some football players who really wanted to participate in the walkout in September and actually felt like it wouldn't necessarily be right for them to attend because oh. of judgment and stere- uh, maybe stereotypes associated with varsity athletes. And so they said, that's their space. I'm not going to go. I don't feel comfortable being a, a varsity athlete and being at this event. And I thought that that binary was really disappointing. Yeah. Um, and so to, to think that there's a group of hundreds of students on campus who they are possibly allies, but they feel ostracized by our community. Yeah. I think that's something that we're empowered to try and resolve. Yeah, for sure. Like you would call out to men on our campus and be like, hey, is anybody willing to like take part in like being the facilitators of the seminar that talks about like why like what barriers do you feel about like being an ally? Like mm-hmm. how do you feel about like the bystander impact and like what can we do? And like seeing them just be like the ones facilitating it might encourage others to feel like they yeah. can participate mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And like the key word that you guys are using is like that empowerment, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a community effort and mm-hmm. community is rooted on empowering others to participate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's even like great to see like the gender equality networks, mm-hmm. Mo- is it November Mondays or something it's called? November Memories. November yeah, Memories. Yeah. Um, great alliteration, I love it. Um, <laughs> um, and that's good. And I like to see like, you know, male student leaders like, you know, mm-hmm. creating that community. Um, so those kinds of campaigns like make such a difference too. Um, and obviously like I can't speak from the male perspective, but I think it's a really good initiative and seeing more of those um, really contributes against that community aspect or that empowerment aspect. Um, I also wanted to shift focus a little bit to the to the LGBTQ plus community um, who are also disproportionately affected and uh, ask like in this in this situation, uh, where they're disproportionately affected, how do you think that we can be 
better allies, you know, like as allies, how can we help with that issue or what thoughts do you have on that in general? Anyone has anything? This is something that like is something like super close to home for me. Mm -hmm. It's something that I just think it needs to start again, like with communication. Um, and also because inherently society is rooted in heteronormative practices. Mm -hmm. You know, I was taught how to use a condom, but not how to use a dental veil. Totally. Um, and that's not to say that STIs can't spread between yeah. like uh, the same sex partners. Um, so whether it be like at residences having dental dams and condoms available, mm -hmm. um, inclusive sex education, making sure that you're including like every type of person, every kind of sexuality in the conversations that you're having. And even as a first year in residence, um, I, I feel like this is kind of stereotypical and obviously I can only speak from my own perspective, but a, a lot of queer students, and again, I understand queer is only a recently reclaimed word. Right. Personally, I'm comfortable using it, um, but for those who aren't, um, I completely understand. Um, that you go to university and you want to find yourself. And that's the time that you feel like you're, you're out of your hometown, you have the freedom to explore who you are a little bit. And I was so excited for that opportunity. And in first year, I didn't see, like, and part of that was my fault for not engaging in the community with organizations like Pride Western and Spectrum um, and those sorts of great organizations that help queer kids feel comfortable on campus. Yeah. Um, but being in first year residence and not feeling that support from you know, the student leaders in the building, they're very heteronormative conversations, mm -hmm. um, not really any of that empowerment, even at floor meetings, talking about, you know, the LGBTQ plus community on Same campus. And that sucked. <laughs> like, if I'm going to put it bluntly, yeah. it sucked. I wanted the first year experience, or a, a fundamental aspect of it yeah. that I was looking forward to, I couldn't partake in. Yeah. Um, and that in itself is just why, even now as a student leader, I am so cognizant of the language that I'm using yeah. because, again, like I said, university is a time where a lot of people, you find yourself yeah. and you, you try to figure out who you are and identity is always fluctuating mm -hmm. and it can be hard because it's high stress. Yeah. So it's always for me, and maybe it's the English major, coming down to being <laughs> cognizant of the language that we're using so yeah. that it's inclusive. And like even saying something so that someone knows that they can reach out to you and talk to you about it, mm -hmm. regardless of whether or not you're a member of the LGBTQ plus community or if you're an ally. Yeah. It's just so important. Yeah. So that was my show. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's a lot about taking intersectional, like safe space approaches all the time. So mm -hmm. like we see like we have on campus, we have like our at the beginning of the year, there's like a rally or a get together for like LGBTQ students and mm -hmm. like, um, but it's a kind of like a singled out event. And I think it would be really great to integrate it into curriculum like across campus as like just to gen generally integrate it. Like just, it's not like a standalone thing. It's not like, it's not like everybody and then like the one LGBTQ. <laughs> yeah, that's right. just totally. what I'm highlight it. But like when you're doing like, everything like make sure it's mm -hmm. it just it's integrated in there because it is like a natural experience like and it seems like like you said like shifting language like having student leaders use the word like partners instead right. of like you know boyfriend or girlfriend because it just mm -hmm. it's a space where you start to realize like that those little things matter yeah. totally I think you really make a great point because like I can speak from my experience as a student leader on campus and like as a two-time soft now who's received the training both times mm -hmm. um, in terms of like sexual and gender-based violence as well as just like being a student leader in general and mm -hmm. I feel like we've never had that conversation like there's never been any specific conversation about supporting the LGBTQ community or you know if you have LGBTQ frosh and they come to you with specific issues like mm -hmm. where you can kind of point them on campus for resources or for a community if you don't feel like you're equipped to have that conversation mm -hmm. which it's really interesting to me because it's like, you know, again, going back to that student experience piece, if we're going to be student leaders, we have to be able to, you know, support and, and have those conversations with all students, not with mm -hmm. those that just identify as heteronormative or, you know, come from white backgrounds if we want to extend this to even like racialized yeah, conversations, totally. right? Um, so I definitely think that's like a big gap in the training as where it currently stands. Yeah, yeah. I have to second that. Like, um, my own experience is also a, a two-time student leader. Um, I was a resident staff for two years. Um, I have to agree, like, the training itself is very heteronormative. It doesn't, it's not that inclusive, at least from what I've seen, especially, like, um, the gender-based violence training. Like, I don't remember it being very comprehensive or inclusive. I remember it just being, like, a PowerPoint presentation. And it honestly, like... 
I don't know if it's stuck with many people, mm-hmm. you know, unless you put in the, yeah. that effort. And um, I know for my own building, we have an LGBTQ floor, which I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we have like um, designated salts and residence dogs on that floor. But I do really think that it needs to be standardized for the entire building and for mm-hmm. student leaders as well. Because mm-hmm. like you said, language does make a difference. Mm-hmm. I know for like personally from my own experience, um, being in an inclusive environment that uses inclusive language genuinely makes you feel more welcome and makes you feel more safe because you know unconsciously or consciously like you feel like someone's looking out for you and I think that's really important too. Yeah. and even again like um I think we're harping on training here because it's so important <laughs> um I remember talking about uh, asking about training um before it began before I started sophomore in my second year um, and I said, oh, is there any training on how to handle a conversation if, but the frosh was coming out to you? Mm-hmm. How to make sure that you're handling it in an appropriate way, you're, um, you're cognizant of the communities that are available and the resources, because inher- like, inherently, softers are meant to be bridges to resources for students. Mm-hmm. Um, and the person who I was talking to, who, who was well-versed in the softing program, um, had done it twice and is a member of uh, LST, I said, no, there isn't any part of that training. And I burst into tears. Oh I was God. like, what do you mean there's no conversations around how to properly handle a coming out situation? Yeah. Um, it's, just, it's just not part of training. And to me, that's a big gap. Huge. Um, because those are sensitive conversations. And for a lot of times, student leaders are that embodiment of a safe space for students. Yeah. And you want to be able to know that, like, even as a student leader, that you're prepared to handle a conversation in a way that's going to make that student feel safe, empowered, comfortable, and they're going to leave that knowing what's available to them in terms of community, in terms mm-hmm. of support. Um, if, you know, God forbid there's, like, an incident with a roommate who's yeah. homophobic, what they can do to get out of that situation and be safe in residence. Um, so in, that, in my mind, is also a significant gap in student leader training, is how mm-hmm. to handle those kinds of conversations in an appropriate manner. And obviously you can't standardize, there's no formula to those, mm-hmm. um, because they, it can occur in all uh, different ways, but at least a rough guideline or some suggestions, I think, would make a world of a difference. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Thank you. Okay, so if it's okay with everyone, we're gonna move on to our next question. So I wanna talk about the survey results that I um, should be mentioned before. So 71% of students facing sexual harassment and over 32% facing sexual assault do not match the number of cases that are actually being reported. So in 2017 to 2018, the same time frame as the previous survey, the university only received 12 reports of sexual assault and harassment. Only 2% of students who reported experiencing sexual harassment actually told staff at Western Sexual Violence Center. Only 3.6% spoke to an on-campus counselor, and only 1.5% went to campus police. So this speaks definitely to a bigger problem of rape culture, namely the lack of survivors being believed in receiving any form of justice for what has happened to them. So I know this is a loaded question, um, but what comes to mind when you guys hear like these numbers, and what do you think we can start to do to change these numbers? Honestly, like, from, like, the student leader, like, perspective that I have, like, I've been to many of those meetings with survivors mm-hmm. just as a support person because it's hard to do it alone. Yeah. And it was hard to be there as somebody who was, who hadn't, like, had the experience. Right. It's a very uncomfortable process. It's a very, very long process. And that's really hard because, like, students go into it knowing that, like, this isn't going to be, like, something that they go, like, you know, go through with the university and then it's done in, like, a space where they can then heal. Like, this is going to take, like, their year, like, their academic year. Like, a lot of reporting with, like, campus police or, like, going to, like, the support services we have in student experience, it's, like, a big thing to do. And it's very, like, heavy and encompassing to, like, carry through their academic year. Um... So I think part of that and like something I talk to a lot of other student leaders about and I think something that would be really helpful would be like, I know you can't say like this is exactly how your reporting system would like play out because everything's different. It's really difficult to do that. But an idea would be lovely. Like a lot of students, Mm -hmm. like I said, they have no information on it and they don't know what it looks like. And then they get there and they're like, oh my gosh, that's like a lot for you to ask of me especially with something that I'm now carrying in like my like personal like 
space. And I think just an idea of what you would be going into would be really nice to be publicized. Like, put it up places. Like, have it, like, just accessible Mm -hmm. so that students know what that looks like because it is right now. I know there's definitely, like, like, I as a person don't have any, like, suggestions because it's a very intense and, like, difficult thing to do. But it's a hard process to go through. It's, like, tough, which makes sense as to why, like, Maybe if, like, I had heard somebody else's experience with it, like, I know personally, like, I wouldn't. But how do we make things then more, like, easier? How do we make things easier for people? Sorry. So we're going to do Yeah. It's we're so funny that you bring this up. <laughs> <laughs> um, ironically. Um, and unfortunate, quite honestly. Um, but it's funny. What Ava and I wrote the terms of reference for our working group. One of the goals that's outlined in the working group is mm-hmm. the idea of a resource guide. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I talked a lot about when I was kind of gathering information to run for my platform. And then it's something that I just heard kind of through my experience. And I'm sure you've had a similar experience in residence life where, you know, a student goes to report and, you know, they maybe expect it to be a one-time experience, but then they have to tell their story five, 10, 20 mm-hmm. times. And it's, you know, what breaks my heart most about it. And I, I, you know, as a soft issue, especially the idea that like somebody's university experience is tainted right off the bat. And then mm-hmm. it's something that they have to carry with them, you know, obviously for the rest of their lives, but as, as they're, you know, going through the process of just the reporting and that's taking years on end, that's, that's so heartbreaking to me. But mm-hmm. as an aside, um, so the, the guide that we kind of outlined and, and our vision for it, um, and we're always looking for suggestions, so I, I know it's a great group to ask, but the idea that, you know, having students understand the different reporting avenues, whether that be on campus or whether that be off campus within the Lyman community, and then having them understand, like, potential timelines, mm-hmm. what um, the supports that they can access would be, as well as, you know, what it looks like in terms of the best positive case outcome, right? So, you know, um, what a lot of students don't understand is that, you know, reporting on campus won't result in any criminal charges, um, and that would be another process for them to go through, and just ensuring that anybody that does go to report and chooses to go into the process, like you mentioned, like, has a better understanding of what that looks like, because yeah. a lot of the times, um, especially within residence life, people, you know, go to their SOFs, and they go to their DONs, and they kind of expect it to be a and as they should, a one-time explanation of this mm-hmm. is what happened to me, and then they should be believed. But yeah. that's not the case, right? Mm-hmm. Our structures are set up so that it's, you know, the survivor is not believed right off the bat. And I'll make a suggestion here if anyone's listening and wants to know more about what that process looks like. And this provides an American context, but I think it provides a great context. Is Chanel Miller's book, Know yeah. My Name, mm-hmm. um, really gives a phenomenal overview of just how taxing it is on yeah. the survivor to tell their story. Um, so yeah, that's kind of one suggestion that I'll let you add on as well. Yeah, well, I just, I think you mentioned some really important, well, for some reason I want to use the word institutions. I'm not sure <laughs> I'd call campus police an institution, but I would say that it's like a death march going from your residence building across campus to campus police and then back up to student, um, like services building and then no one knows where, where to direct you. And if, if there's one part of that system that doesn't line up properly, someone wasn't where they were supposed to be. Well, then you're lost on campus and you're trying to talk to a counselor about what happened to you and no one is comfortable enough to actually tell you what you need to know. Yeah. And so that is why I think that resource, that's what was you know so important to about it to me, was that when we talk about empowering survivors, they can't do that without knowledge and information. Yeah. And that takes a lot of control back onto their plate, that takes brains back into their hands that says, okay, now I have this information. It's not on anybody else's shoulders because also, but realistically, it's mm-hmm. a burden to be able to educate a survivor on what their options are as well. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's no step of the process that isn't taxing. Yeah. Um, and so providing that information in a very, because again, it can also be really cognizant of who is accessing it, mm-hmm. open-minded, mm-hmm. Um, well-researched. It's just, it's something that is available to a student or whoever is accessing it that is, I think it tells you, you're heard, we want to hear you, we have resources for you. It, it's something as well that when you're choosing your avenue, you're doing it so educated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of how we shift dialogue and conversations on campus because I think you made a really good point about how you both kind of referenced that you know you have your, your pool of knowledge from before you come to Western and that will probably inform how you behave once, once you're here. And out of the gate, your first kind of interaction is in residence. That is a time for the university to set a tone. Mm-hmm. What's acceptable? What is not? What language do we use? Yeah. Are you prepared to be on the page we are on? 
and we'll tell you why mm -hmm. it is the way it is. And that's part of uplifting students as well. So I think when that all comes together, a resource guide is something that is taking a proactive step rather mm -hmm. than a reactive one. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. it goes back to that term that we used earlier, like empowering survivors, mm -hmm. right? You know, ensuring that they know their options and that it's not just, oh, I told myself and now I'm suddenly having to report to five different people because yeah. I felt like I needed to tell and open up to someone, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that a lot of the measures that we see now are very much in a legal um, liability kind of approach, and I, and I understand Weston's a business, and I understand that, mm -hmm. but there is also a, a humanity side of things here, right? And yeah. protecting our students and protecting the survivors is really important. Yeah. Absolutely, because I mean, also think of the burden, like SOFs are students first, yeah. right? And I there's one of the pieces of this whole process that breaks my heart is the emotional trauma that that can put onto a student leader who has their best intentions, but at the end of the day, so many things are beyond their control. Mm -hmm. um, and so to expect us off to have to you know, have that conversation, and I know, you know we do our trainings without things like that, but they have this difficult conversation and then what? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't go anywhere. You still continue to live on the same floor if you're a resident soft, things like that. Um, and it's an interesting position to be put in as a soft because then you, in some, in some ways, your hands are tied, there's procedures and policies that you have to follow through with. Um, and you know, SOFs are fantastic for trying to be a student's friend and having that connection. Mm -hmm. But then how does that impact your professional obligations as a SOF and then your kind of emotional obligations to a student that you've built a relationship with over their time as they come to the school? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I will say, just to kind of cycle back to the question, um, I think the hard reality of it is there is no way to make the process easier. Yeah. Um, it's a very bureaucratic process and it's a long one. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes down to survivor support and making sure that they have the supports that they need throughout it mm -hmm. because timelines are timelines. Yeah. Um, and that is really hard to hear. Mm -hmm. um, but it's why, like Ava and Nika have said, that resource guide is so important because if you're choosing to go through with a report, you deserve to know exactly or at least as close to as exactly as it can get what is going to happen and what you can expect yeah. um, because it is incredibly emotionally taxing and something that is also hard is we use the word believe right we believe survivors we believe survivors when you file a report at least through the student code of conduct it's the word believe is never used it's on the balance of probabilities something likely happened to you so you have gone through probably one of the most traumatic experiences of your life, relived it again and again and again, heard what your perpetrator said about you, refuted it, gone through conversations after conversation um, that no matter how they're phrased will always feel antagonistic and accusatory and like they're tearing you to shreds, all for you to receive an email from the university that if you're lucky on the balance of probabilities something probably happened to you. And it is the worst feeling in the world, something that's supposed to be relieving, something that's supposed to make what you've gone through worth it in some small twisted way that is reduced to that sentence, that's reduced to that scale. And I understand the legal implications behind it. Like, I want to go to law school. I get the legality and the, and the terminology that we have to use. Mm -hmm. But that in itself is incredibly hard to hear. And it's why, again, it comes back to that resource guide. The resource guide. It comes back to support for survivors because there truly is no way to make something that traumatic easier. Mm -hmm. You can just, like, yeah. it never gets better. Time just passes. Mm -hmm. That's just the, the harsh reality of it. Thank you. That's such a great like. Thank you for all of that. Um, I sorry. I just no, wanted yeah. to mention that I'm I'm really glad to hear that there is a resource guide that's that's coming. Um, because when everything happened back in September, um, I felt deeply affected by it, and I'm not a first year student. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, but I am a TA of first year students, and mm -hmm. so I kind of like looked around to see if I could like pull up like yeah. a resource document for them, and there wasn't like one place that I could go to that listed everything. Yeah. And so I ended up like going to all these different places and like pulling it together myself. But like mm -hmm. for someone who has just gone through a traumatic experience like that, yeah. like to yeah. like there yeah. should be like at least like one place where they can look. And I know yeah. that on my last um, university campus at Queens, we had um, this place called the Sexual Health Resource Center. 
And it was like a sex positive, non-judgmental, confidential, um, non-heterosexist place mm-hmm. um, that had like a bunch of like sexual health <laughs> resources, obviously. Um, but they also had um, consent training workshops and they also had um, these uh, services in place where they could like basically hold your hand through like getting a rape kit done or something related to that. And it, as far as I know, I know I'm, I'm new here, but there isn't anything like that on Western campus. And if, if that had happened to me, I wouldn't know where to turn to and what the first thing to do would be. And so I think having like one place with all those resources yeah. would be helpful. Mm-hmm. And to have people who are able to support you and like walk you through these systems. It's interesting that you mentioned like that resource center because I feel like at least in my dialogues regarding like supporting survivors afterwards, so many people constantly mention ANOVA. And I'm from London, so I'm very familiar with ANOVA and I worked with them throughout high school as well. So they're a great organization. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because the second you mentioned that I was thinking about that it's kind of odd that as a university and as you know, student leaders, we almost like third party out the support <laughs> systems. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is you know, it's very odd. Nova a lot. It's just like, oh well, it was with yeah, Nova. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Not to say it's not. Like it's wonderful <laughs> that Nova is here, and it's yeah. wonderful that Nova is a funded resource. Um, but Western is a massive institution. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. very much, you know, with a power. lot of financial power and very much has the funds that we could have a resource center of similar size to Queens. There's, you know, no reason that that couldn't be a reality on our campus. And I'd be interested to see because it seems that, you know, administration in light of recent events has really taken the approach that they're trying to be more proactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that center would be a great kind of option or something similar to that in you know really making these preventative measures and making these steps towards targeting rape culture on campus institutionalized mm-hmm. so that this isn't just a, oh guys, September was really bad, so we're gonna do something for this year only yeah. and uh, yeah. we'll see what happens next year. Because <laughs> um, yeah. that's kind of how I feel. Like yeah. It's definitely one of those things where, and I, I'm sorry, I know we weren't kind of supposed to discuss the events of September, but- Oh, it's, it, it can come up in conversation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's like, I don't want to see the conversation fizzle out. And I think mm-hmm. one of the big things that I felt and I continue to feel is um, the rally was, as a soft, the rally was, you know, amazing. Like, I, it was it was really wonderful to see. Mm-hmm. But there's also an aspect to the rally, and I'm, I'm sure the fellow softs at the table, and just as, as students in general, mm-hmm. that's kind of ridiculous in the sense that I shouldn't need to stand on UC Hill and demand my safety to administration. Right. Yeah, that's fair. It's, you know, in a reality, it, it shouldn't have been necessary. We should have never been in that position, and it yeah. shouldn't take thousands of students having to yell at Alan Shepard to do something <laughs> for Alan to listen. Um, and for administration in general, I don't mean to just single out Alan, but he tends to be a figurehead. Um, I should probably be calling him President Shepard as well, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, but I think it's one of those things where like a resource center is kind of an institutionalized step towards supporting survivors and towards taking preventative measures mm-hmm. instead of just, you know, in light of Western making national news them responding with right. one year of consent education training or, you know, yeah. one year of, of looking at just different measures that we can take. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and as like a, a person who's new here, I I thought there was reasons like <laughs> yeah. that. And like when I left to find it and there wasn't one, that was pretty shocking to me. Like why isn't there a like a specific resource for Western for sexual violence for if, sure. if we're supposed to be so um, like, like care so much about it as yeah. a university. It just seems a little ridiculous. I to think me. you make such a good point too, both of you, on the concept that there needs to be more inter-university and like inter-college dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, this is like it's not just a Western issue. Sexual mm-hmm. assault and gender-based violence occurs at every university yeah. campus across the country and every university campus across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I truly think it would be beneficial for Ontario universities, especially um, as the called the Council of Universities and Colleges, yeah. to have that conversation about how can what's the word um address address, but in a way that it's it makes it not the same across the board but similar so say for example i'm a queen student and i transfer to western i shouldn't have to relearn this entirely different way of doing things this new standard and figure out everything and start basically from scratch Mm -hmm. there should be some level of standardization that's the word i'm looking for Mm -hmm. um where at each university so say for example hey like i 
I go to a university and I'm like, hey, this isn't for me. I want to transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I move. I should also I should not have to relearn everything about a very important part about safe, like campus yeah. security and campus safety from ground zero from university to university. I think there's a lot of merit for universities to have that discussion about what can we make this the same or similar so that it's familiar for students. Mm-hmm. So again, God forbid if they do go yeah. through a traumatic incident, they they know where to look. Like they they shouldn't have to go. F- hunting for something that isn't there. Well, and, I, and I think it's this idea that why am I losing a resource? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? Like, that's kind of ludicrous if <laughs> yeah. you in those terms. And I think part of this whole conversation is an idea of onus. Like, a lot of it is falling onto students' shoulders. Mm-hmm. You're a student, you're a PhD student. That's a lot of responsibility to have to gather resources. I know within the FIMS faculty, one of the head TAs gathered a, a resource to send to all first-year students. Mm-hmm. And so then that was shared with all of the TAs for mm-hmm. the mandatory first-year course. So they were all getting standardized, but that was not, they were not obligated to create resources like that. Mm-hmm. That was a choice and fantastic that, you know, she did that. But and it's kind of crazy. Why wasn't that sent out from administration? Yeah. I think that, again, the question yes. is like, why are PhD students who are busy and also young people who are probably affected by the issues on yeah. campus, having to go out of their way to create that, those resources, that should have been sent directly to students you know, yes. by their deans or by their department chairs. Or well, and it, yes, and another thing I'd say to that is it's like how we were all chanting to Alan Shepard, President Shepard, and um, his statement included this kind of idea that we're listening, I hear you. It's like, okay, well, you're the guy. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> like, great. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Sorry, yeah. High five. Like, yeah. let's, let's great. the ball rolling. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's almost like, where are you yelling to that? Right. Yeah. Like, come on, like, I, I shouldn't, we shouldn't have to stand here as, you know, a collective student body and say, like, we deserve to be yeah. safe. Mm-hmm. That, that should yeah. just be the mm-hmm. assumption. Well, like, if you think about it, or if you, like, conceptualize it, like, a lot of the time it's survivors supporting survivors. Like, mm-hmm. it's not a lot of, like, responsibility from folks, like, outside of it. It's a lot of, mm-hmm. like, student leaders who have personally been affected are taking their students to the support because they know how taxing it is mm-hmm. yeah. to like go through it. Or like you said, like it personally, like it hit home for you and you looked for resources because you were supporting folks who like, you know how taxing it is. Like it's a lot of that. It's a lot of like exterior yeah. people and you need to take the responsibility to mm-hmm. like address it mm-hmm. for the people who like have been through it to kind of like take a breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 100%. that's something too. Like we talk about a lot, especially with student advocacy, is the mobilization of the student voice. And while the student voice is an incredibly powerful tool, an incredibly powerful thing in terms of creating change, um, sometimes like your voice runs out. Sometimes you're like, tired. Yeah, like, sometimes sometimes my throat is sore. Yeah, um, I'm screaming and it feels like a void. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when, especially, it's important for the administration to step in because in order to have a small change, we shouldn't have to scream and chant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like 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 you said at the beginning of this, um, Eva, it's an expectation. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's interesting what you said about standardization because it made me think of when they changed the policy a few years ago so that if you come forward and you were sexually assaulted while you were drunk or while you were under the mm-hmm. you know influence of substances, that couldn't be held against you. And I remember reading that and being like, that could have been held against <laughs> you. Like, <Yeah. laughs> like, I'm, I'm shocked and appalled. But um, yeah, like I think, again, it goes to that standardization piece from like, the Ontario government, even mm-hmm. in the sense that like, you know, you can't be held liable for being, you know, under the influence of substance and under the student code of conduct, but also, you know, that should be a greater conversation of how mm-hmm. can we, as a, as a province, um, especially as the province within Canada that has the most institutions in terms of universities and colleges, look at a process for supporting survivors on a broader scale, because mm-hmm. um, definitely the merit is there, and definitely, like, the mm-hmm. funds that students are, you know, bringing in is also there. And a lot of like the student advocacy bodies that work with the provincial government um, work with every kind of university. I'm thinking like USA, which works with all kinds of different bodies. Um, mm-hmm. Even UCRU is a federal organization that works like with uh, national um, advocacy. So there's precedence to suggest that there is this inter-institution discussion. Um, I think it's high time for universities to engage in that with respect specifically to gender-based violence. Yeah. So yeah, we just had some great conversation about um, the reporting process and how it is definitely very taxing and very onerous on survivors themselves. And it kind of almost feels like, almost like the burden of responsibility is on the survivor to be able to 
you know, see the reporting process through the end rather than it being on the perpetrator. Um, and so one thing we need to do is to gather statistics on how many students are sexually harassing and assaulting other students, and we need to stop acting like there's some invisible outside force that's coming in and assaulting students, because I feel like that's very much the culture that we have mm -hmm. here at Western. It's less of the recognition that, like, it is our own students, and it is comes from, like you mentioned before, the party culture mm -hmm. and... Um, the kind of culture we have around on campus. So I want to know, what do you guys think that the average student can do to kind of combat issues of gender-based violence on campus? I think this is a not a tricky line to walk, but it, I, although I've asked our conversation around calling in, um, but there is also kind of the concept of safety to kind of consider. Um, and I, you know, as a resident, I've had a conversation with students saying, you know, what do I do if I'm at a party? and I see someone being made uncomfortable by someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in an ideal world, you'd be able to kind of say, put a stop to it, but also you don't want to put yourself in a, you know, potentially dangerous situation. Yeah. Um, and so again, like a theme of our conversation has definitely been education. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the best thing for the average student to do is to actively participate in that education. Um, and it, it might sound silly, but that is kind of like the biggest thing is being open to hearing and receiving that education. Um, and like I said earlier, like the concept of calling in, mm -hmm. um, becoming more comfortable with calling in your friends and having mm -hmm. those conversations um, and just kind of adjusting the culture from the ground up a little bit.